following audio is from a sermon series called Rebuilding the Ruins. The story of Ezra and Nehemiah begin with the people of God in Babylonian exile due to their unfaithfulness. The God of heaven, who is faithful to his promises, then stirs up and empowers his people to walk anew in faithfulness and rebuild the ruins. For more information about Sacred City Moline, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ezra 7, 1 through 10. Now after this, in the reign of Erxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Emariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzai, son of Buckeye, son of Abishua, son of Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem, in the seventh year of Erexerxes the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and the Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers, and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set in his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statues and rules in Israel. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so that's how you say those names. That's, that's good news. All right. Well, if you know who I am, I am uh, Rob Spikestra. I am pastor of discipleship over at Sacred City Davenport. And uh, it's my privilege to get to come here today and preach God's word to you. So thank you for, uh, for letting me do this. Well, we are making a significant turn here in the study of the book of Ezra. Thus far, the book has all been about a mission of rebuilding a temple, the temple. It's been about God providentially paving the way for his people to return to Jerusalem. It's been about confrontation, it's resistance and persecution to that mission. It's been about discouragements, repentance, reorienting one's life around God's mission. It's been about a story about how God's enemies, rather uh, than serving a mission-destroying blow, becomes rather God's instruments to give state sanction and resources without any kind of state involvement. So that we come to the end of chapter 6, the temple is finished, worship is occurring, celebrating, enjoying, particularly an enjoyment around the Passover as a reminder of God's provision for the forgiveness of sin through the blood of a lamb, pointing to the lamb. The Lamb of Jesus Christ who shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins so that as we come here today to worship him, we worship under that covering. 
God's fingerprints have been all over this story thus far. So once again, world powers are instruments in his hands moving his story forward. So chapter 7 is now a change. It's a change in focus, at least in two ways. The focus of the story is shifting toward an individual who becomes an instrument in God's hands for reformation. (laughs) You know, for a book named after Ezra, I think it's astounding that we haven't even been introduced to him yet. And so it's now we're being introduced to him in chapter seven. Secondly, the focus is now off the building and onto what is going to happen in and around that temple, namely a life of worship. What makes the news on the world scene, the the movements of the nations, is really a footnote of what God is doing in the hearts, in the hearts, and through the hearts of individuals. And that's what we are finding here in Ezra. God is using a world power, decisions of kings, to bring about a reformation in and through individuals. When we think of the word reformation in our circles, we, we many times think about the Protestant Reformation. And out of this, we say we are reformed and always reforming. Reformation is a kind of a lifelong process that God has called us to both repentance and to faith, reordering our lives around the word of God. So with this definition, reformation needs to occur in our individual lives. Reformation needs to occur in our marriages. Reformation needs to occur in our families. Reformation needs to occur in our churches. Reformation needs to occur in our communities. And the list goes on and on of what needs to be reformed. And it is an ongoing process. So what we're going to find here is that reformation requires the right man or woman doing the right thing. Reformation requires the right man or woman doing the right thing. So two questions this morning. One, if there's going to be a reformation, what kind of man or woman is required? And then secondly, what ought they to be doing? So let's go to that first question. What kind of man or woman is required for reformation? Verses one through six. We discover that some things are under our control and some things not so. Look again at verses one through six. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, uh, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Meroth, son of Zerhiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishu, son of Phenus, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest, this Ezra, went from Babylonia. The first thing that is required uh, is to be chosen and thus called. Again, this, this being the first time that Ezra has appeared in the book that's named after him, the first thing we learn from him is that he has a unique calling. A calling that comes as a result of being born into a particular family. 
He comes from the line of Aaron, the chief priest. See, God identified uh, one tribe out of all the tribes, the tribe of Levi, who, whose families were responsible for maintaining the daily worship of God. But out of that tribe, there was one family from which the high priest came who was principally responsible for the conduct of all of Israel's worship, for the tabernacle and for all the sacrifices and the festivals. The worship buck stopped there. But the chief priest was not just someone who did oversight of what was going on in the tabernacle and then later uh, the temple. No, this was an individual who was then designated to go into the hot spot of the tabernacle and the temple, later the temple, to meet with God. And I say hot spot because this is where the holy God of the universe would meet with humanity through one man, one sinful man. Hebrews 5, 1, sorry, Hebrews 5, verse 1 through 4 reads this way. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness because of this, the, this weakness, that is, he's a sinner, because he is a sinner, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when God, when called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, can you imagine what it must have been like to be that, that high priest who was chosen by God to go into the hot spot of God's holiness and to wonder, am I going to even come back out of here alive? He goes in with a sense of his own conscience, a sense of his own uh, fact that he is a sinner. And so what is he doing? He's relying upon the word of God, the word of God saying, I can make you right by uh, the shedding of the blood of some sacrifices, sacrifices of animals. And so he goes in, but he goes in like, you know, you would go into the uh, nuclear plant and you'd be going into the very core of that and you've got this suit on, but you're really wondering, is this suit gonna, is it really gonna protect me from this awesome power. Well, that's what it was like for this high priest. There were three requirements according to Hebrews 5, 1 through 4. According to this passage, first he is chosen, verse 1. Secondly, he is required to offer a sacrifice for his own sins, verse 3. In other words, he couldn't just waltz into God's presence in any ordinary way, any way he wants to. No, that was to invite death. And then thirdly, being chosen, he was, verse 4, Hebrews 5, verse 4, he was what? Called. Called by God. Ezra was this man. This is something completely out of control. God picked him. Whenever my sons, I have three adult sons, whenever my sons would complain about my parenting, particularly about what I was asking them to do, I would simply take them down this thought experiment by asking them, well then why did you choose to be born into our family if you don't like the rules? 
And when they answered, I didn't choose. Then I would reply, that's right, God did. So if you have a complaint with my parenting, take it to him. But it goes the other way. When I tired to have to discipline them, I knew my responsibility remained the same. A quiet, a quiet voice in my head repaid, repeated the common line fi- uh, found in tag, you're it. God chose me to be their father. So in my laziness, that thought, you're it, would move you forward, spur me forward. And so often in reformation, in reforming our own heart or reforming our marriage or reforming our family and so forth, we need to repeat that line, you're it. And sometimes as we look into this, I have a daughter as well. She's adopted. She's adopted from China. Uh, She was in an orphanage. She was in a very poor orphanage. Wasn't held her first year. Um, She, uh, God used a bureaucrat in Guangzhou, took her name, took our names, and so God used sovereignly over that choice. They chose Emily as our daughter. Emily, Zhang Di is her Chinese name. They chose Zhang Di for the spike stress. You're it. See, see, God works in a lot of amazing ways. Uh, People are born into your life or chosen for you by a Chinese bureaucrat. Now, my daughter has a lot of problems that's come as a result of that. And so now she's a teenager, and as a teenager, uh, it's, I would have never chosen this challenge. <laughs> and God reminds me, you're it. And I look at my parenting, and I look at my wife and her parenting, and sometimes we look at each other and say, I don't think God made a very, you know, I don't, I don't think we're the right people here. I I don't think we are the people that God should have used to work out the difficulties that our daughter has, and yet we keep on reminding ourselves, oh yeah, God says, you're it. See, there's a confidence in the fact that God is sovereign and he providentially brings uh, people into our lives in order uh, for him to work through weak people like us who have been covered by the blood of the lamb and so that he can powerfully work in lives. And we look at ourselves and we say, hmm, I don't know, I'm not really probably the right person for this. (laughs) God, he chooses and then he calls and that gives us confidence. Philippians 1.6, Paul wrote, he said, I am sure of this, he's writing to the Philippian believers, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. See, Paul's confidence was in God's sovereign choice and call on the lives of his readers. If you're in Jesus Christ right now, God had chosen you and called you, and so the confidence is not in you, but rather the confidence is in his sovereign, wise will in eternity past who places his love on you and says, you're it. See, that's who God uses. (laughs) The ones who have been chosen and thus called by him. (laughs) 
Secondly, God uses those who make the most of what he has given. Within the universe of God's sovereignty, we are still responsible to make the most of what God has given. So look at Ezra, middle of verse six. First of all, he was a scribe. He studied the law of Moses. A scribe's responsibility was to do, here's a unique word, but an important word. He was responsible to do exegesis in the text. Now what's that? Well, exegesis is the process of discovering the original and intended meaning of a passage of scripture. And the result of doing that study is that the explanation or interpretation of a text is that which is intended by the original author. So that when we approach God's word, we are trying to get at the original author's intended meaning of the message. And ultimately, because scripture has a divine author, the aim is to get at God's meaning, not our own. See, the temptation is to do another unique word, eisegesis, which is to read into a text our own ideas of what, is, what it ought to mean. And when we do this, the creature is telling the creator how he ought to work or who he is. But note something else the text says about Ezra. Did you see that? He was what? What kind of scribe? Skilled. Ezra, Ezra was someone who could handle the text well. Ezra became skilled as he applied himself. Ezra became skilled like you have become skilled in whatever the work it is you do. Ezra became skilled like you if you're a tradesman who took years and years and time and work and effort and he became skilled and he became skilled and disciplined to learn God's word. He made the most of what he had been given and he worked hard to learn Now what does verse six say? To learn what? To learn the law of Moses. Now Ezra could have simply found worth in applying himself to the law because it was written by Moses. Uh, The assessment of Moses' life is found in Deuteronomy 34 verse 10 which simply says this, there had not risen, Deuteronomy 34 verse 10 said, there had not risen a prophet since in in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt. All the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all of Israel. And for that reason, it would have been worthy for Ezra to have studied the text because it simply came from Moses. But the law was more than just Moses' word. He was skilled in the law of Moses Finish the verse, that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. He knew these were God's words. This is kind of the Old Testament expression of our New Testament, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures breathed out by God. Or just simply put this way. God wrote a book. God wrote a book. So that in reality, it's worthy to be read and studied and obeyed. Ezra understood this, so he took his calling and made the most of it. And it's this kind of person whom God uses to bring reformation. Making the most of what God has given you. Thirdly, what kind of man or woman is required? Well, thirdly, one who rests in God's promises. 
So you look at the end of, at the end of verse six where it says, the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Now implied in that the king granted him all that he asked was the fact that Ezra actually took the initiative and petitioned uh, the king. And so the rest of ch- this chapter, chapter seven, uh, beginning of verse 11, we learn the details of what Ezra asked for. But the point is, Ezra asked. I can imagine Ezra as a boy being told by his mother, um, well, you know, Ezra, if you really want that job down at the temple, you just need to ask. People who don't ask don't receive. So we see here the intertwining of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. Ezra had to petition the king, and the king granted him all that he asked. Now, why? Why did the king do that? Well, the text tells us. For the hand of the Lord. Uh, That's his covenant name. So, for the hand of Yahweh. God's covenant name. For the hand of Yahweh. That's a reminder that God had made a promise to never forsake his people. For the hand of Yahweh, his God, was on him. See, you'll you'll notice there, if you had some time to read through Ezra, there's a a number of times where it talks about the hand of God being on him, but here it specifically says it's the hand of Yahweh, his God, that was on him. And so it's God's promise that I will never leave you nor forsake you that empowers our confidence to take the next best step, the next bold step, in his case, to petition the king for reformation to occur. He he trusted in God's promises. So what is he calling you to change? To reform. What do you need to turn away from and turn to God? In what realm do you need reformation? Is it personally? Is it in your family? Is it in your marriage? Is it in the way you work? What has he been convicting you recently of? You're it. Make the most of what God has given you and grow and trust in his promises. This is the kind of people God uses to bring reformation. But if you are it, what about that second question? Reformation requires the right man or woman doing the right thing. What's the right things? What are the right things that this man or woman ought to do in order to bring about reformation? Well, the next three verses give some specific details about Ezra's journey toward reformation uh, in Jerusalem. And so let's read uh, verses 7 through 9. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem for the good hand of his God was on him. 
Now from what we have here, we learn that it took Ezra four months to make the trek from the province of Babylonia to Jerusalem. They began the trip in March, April, springtime, and arrived somewhere in midsummer, probably July or August. A direct route from Babylonia, the province of Babylonia, to Jerusalem was about 500 miles. However, to avoid the desert, they probably took a more northerly route through uh, Syria. And the impression of the text is that this was, uh, well, this was really an expeditious journey. That is, it had speed and it came with efficiency. And the author gives us the providential reason for this in verse 9. For the good hand of his God was on him. See, see, not only was the distance great, but it was also dangerous. In, in those days, journeys over long distances, travelers could expect trouble. And if it wasn't of the weather or animal sort of trouble, it was of the human sort of trouble. Chapter 8 particularly pointly points this out as as there's a description of Ezra's preparations for the journey. And in verse 21 of of chapter 8, just one uh, chapter over here, Uh, we we read in verse 21, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Hava uh, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, for our children and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Now, he was ashamed to ask the king for an armed escort because he had told the Persian king that, continue to read in verse 22, that the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So in saying that to the king, he felt felt like he couldn't petition the king for an army escort. In other words, he was putting his faith (laughs) where his mouth was. So verse 23, we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. They arrived unscathed. Now, why was, why was Ezra's journey without incident? Well, back, uh, back to our passage, in the verse, uh, back to our text, in the verse 9, we are already, we've already seen that the good hand of God was on him. But why was the good hand upon him? Well, we could say, well, at the end of verse 6, we had discovered that it was because uh, employing God's uh, covenant name, because God had promised uh, never to forsake his people. But, but there's more. We can't ignore the first word of verse 10. So it's not just because of God's good, sovereign hand upon him. He says, no, for, first word of verse 10. See, that word also seems to explain why God's hand was on Ezra. Ezra was about certain things that brought blessing on his life. And we can be about those certain things that will bring Reformation blessings on our life. So what ought we to be doing to bring those kind of blessings, God's reformation blessings on our life? Well, the first is study the word of God. And that is what Ezra did. Now, when we study God's word, there are several requirements. First, number one, intentionality, intentionality. 
Look again at the text. Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord. Set his heart is a word that communicates an intentionality and fixedness of purpose. Ezra made a willful, thoughtful decision that he was going to study God's word. And the Hebrew word used gives a sense of consistency. So studying God's word was going to characterize his life. It was what he was going to be about. Which then naturally requires, number two, a plan. A plan that reflects the priority. See, anytime uh, we make an intentional decision like this, setting our heart on something, something else has to give. Extra hours are not given to us. We've got to take with the limited amount of time that we have, and then we've got to remove something, and then we've got to put something in there. And so Ezra removed something in his life, and he put something in there in order to make his priorities true. He set his course towards studying the law of the Lord, and so doing so, he set his face away from other pursuits. He was setting priorities. So what's your plan? What are you going to turn away from in order to pursue? Thirdly, studying God's word requires humility. Humility. Look at how God's word is described there. The law of the Lord. Or we could say the law of Yahweh. There's his name again. Again, it's it's to take us a reference back to the covenant of God. And in the covenant of God, this God who has covenanted with these people, he says, if you're going to really enjoy this covenant, then you must obey me. You must have humility that sets aside what you think is true and right and good and submit to what God says is true, right, and good. See, a humble heart is absolutely necessary to receive God's blessing. And this is particularly clear when you realize this. Turning your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55, and we're going to begin at verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now you should hear Uh, reforming words there. Let the wicked, what? Forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to Yahweh. And what will happen? That he may have compassion on him for he will abundantly pardon. (laughs) Now look at verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now now that ought to strike a bit of fear in our hearts. 
By this very verse, verses, I can bet that my view of who God is and how his world works and what I ought to do are probably tainted, if not completely off. That ought to strike a bit of fear in us. Now, when you read or heard in, verses, in verse 6, and seven, when you heard the word the wicked and the unrighteous, you probably did what I did. You glossed right over them. I'm not wicked. I'm not unrighteous. Oh, yes, I am. Oh, yes, you are. See, I said Jesus reads my interpretation into the text of who is wicked and unrighteous, exegesis submits to the author's meaning and tells me who the wicked and the unrighteous are, and they are those who have thoughts that are not his thoughts, ways that are not his ways. That's me. That's you. Oh, yes, you are. You are wicked and unrighteous. And so am I. Now, here's the good news. Verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven... And do not return there, but water the earth. That's, that's an image that should, that's a, it's a pleasant, good image. Making it bring forth and sprouts, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my words be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. So if you come to God's word with a humble heart and it will call you to repentance, he's, you remember there? He said, let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts, verse seven, and faith, let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. He will abundantly pardon. Good news. You study God's word, you should be convicted, you should know that you've got to come to it with hum humility because you are not thinking his thoughts, I'm not thinking his thoughts, I don't understand his ways, and he says, repent, and I will pour out like rain and snow on you. You will flourish. <laughs> Man, it makes you want to study right now, doesn't it? <laughs> and when God's word has succeeded in doing that, look at verse 12. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. Oh, that's all I want for my life is joy. I want peace. Okay, you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will join you. They will go before you and shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. <laughs> so what does a man or woman do in bringing about reformation? Study the word of God. <laughs> Second, obey. Obey the word of God. Obey the word of God. Back to our passage 
Much of the same things Ezra brought to studying God's word, he brought to obeying God's word. Obedience requires intentionality. Again, number one, intentionality. The verb sets his heart, not only controls to study, but also to do it. Ezra set his heart to do it. So we have to make a willful, thoughtful decision to obey whatever God reveals to our hearts through the study of his word. And it's this intentionality that protects us from a distorted bobblehead life. You know, you know what those are, right? Bobbleheads are those three-dimensional characterizations of a real person. The Pharisees were bobbleheads of a godly life, of a godly man. It's not enough to know. Obedience is required. And so you'll recognize this. James 1, says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. Deceiving yourselves. See, there's an implicit warning there, and that is that we can easily deceive ourselves into thinking that what we know is who we are. No, James goes on to explain using a metaphor, you'll recognize it, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. The word of God is a mirror. It shows us what is wrong with the discontent of our hearts, but to know the problem and do nothing about it is like walking away from the mirror and doing nothing about the blemish we see on our face. But the good news is found in obedience because he continues, James does, he says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. See, this blessedness, which means a place of satisfaction and contentment, comes as a result of obedience, and this is because the word which we study is the law of liberty, and what it's doing, it actually frees us from the slave ways of sin. So what does this mean in a very practical way? Well, every time I either personally study God's word or come under the teaching or preaching of the word of God, I need to be asking the Holy Spirit, what ought I to do as a result of this word? In that seminal statement on the divine authorship of scripture, we're gonna look at 2 Timothy. Turn in your Bible to 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16. It's helpful to look at this because it will, it helps us to consider what I ought to do. So turn there, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. And look what it says here. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So a ready heart, a ready heart to do may receive what? Teaching. So we need to be asking God, God, what are you teaching me today? A ready heart to do may receive reproof. And reproof is just simply showing us how we've gotten off. And so we may be praying, where have I gone wrong, Lord? Or a heart ready to do will look for correction. In other words, how do I get back on track? And we might pray that prayer. Or three, or four, I guess it is, for a heart ready to do, we'll be looking for retraining. 
uh, how to maintain a right way of going into life. And so we may be praying, God, what are the new rhythms that I need to create in my life today? What's that small thing that you're asking me to do? A rhythm, a habit. See, God gave us his word, verse 17, his, his, his word on life, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It requires intentionality. It also requires perseverance. Perseverance. No quick fixes here. <laughs> See, again, I'll read for you James 1.25. It says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres. Be no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. Requires perseverance. When Peter was writing to those whom he called the elect exiles, believers who had been dispersed throughout the Roman Empire due to persecution for Jesus Christ, he, he knew that they were going to need kind of a time perspective in what was going on for them. So in, in second, or excuse me, first Peter, first Peter chapter one, I think I have that up there for you as well. First Peter chapter one, verse 13. Listen how he talks to these people who he's calling exiles. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, sounds a lot like studying God's word, a lot of mind work in those, few, that, those phrases. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you next week, next month, next year, 10 years. No, he says, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, so he's calling them to live out of their identity as a child of God, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conducts. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Well, the exile he's talking about is not the exile from their country here, but the exile, the fact that they are exiles now, that they have another country, a lasting country, an everlasting country of which he is, they are part of, that they are citizens of. So when is that judgment going to come? Well, when is the Father going to make all things right? When is he going to balance the books? Well, considering the fact that he's calling them to conduct themselves with fear as exiles, the judgment isn't going to happen in this life, but is promised when he, he, Jesus, returns to set up his kingdom in the future. And that is what is to sober our reality. It takes perseverance. So as God brings conviction and you move forward and you struggle and you fail, persevere. And when you move forward and you trip and fall, persevere. And when you start to not believe, persevere. <laughs> it's perseverance. No quick fix. Don't give up. Persevere in your obedience. Reformation occurs as we obey God's word. Finally, those God uses to bring reformation Teach the Word of God. 
teach the Word of God. This requires three things. First, it requires people. Well, Martha, I could have told them that. People. That's obvious. Let me explain then, and then point you back to the Bible. Consider the order that we have here. Ezra studied, he obeyed, and then he taught. So here's the order. Second in that order, God has always intended for his word to take on flesh. That is, truth lived out. Third in that order, students, we need to see the word of God lived out. We need to be in relationship with others who are studying and obeying God's word to be taught. So Ezra, he needed to go to Jerusalem. He needed to live the truth before the people. See, back to the, back to the Bible. Before Paul writes about the divine authorship of God's words in 2 Timothy, listen how he writes to Timothy. He writes to Timothy, he says, you, Timothy, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Sound like Peter, I mean, excuse me, Timothy had seen something in Paul. My, 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 you've seen me do that. And you have followed it. And then, in a few verses later, he writes to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. And the knowing here isn't about uh, learning about someone, like reading about an author on the dust jacket in a book. No, the knowing is a relationship. And the beautiful thing here is that as Paul, the people he's referring to, he's referring to his mother and his grandmother. See, when we talk about teaching, we're not confining ourselves to formal teaching sessions. Matter of fact, most of our teaching occurs in ordinary life. It occurs in ordinary relationships. He calls mothers and grandmothers to teach. And fathers and grandfathers. And brothers and sisters in Christ. In our ordinary life. Like when we're sitting around the dinner table. Driving down the road eating together, reading a good story before bed, while making breakfast, planting a tree, whatever the ordinary things we were doing, God says, this is the time for you to be teaching. The word of God was intended to be taught in relationships. It requires people. And there's a very good chance you're it. Secondly, it requires courage. See, teaching is helping other people take responsibility for the lives. See, back to our passage there in Ezra chapter 7, uh, verse 10. Uh, did you notice how the word of God is now described? Statutes and rules. The Hebrew word for statutes is from the root verb meaning to scratch or engrave. And it was common practice among the ancients to engrave laws upon slabs of stone and then set them up in public places. And the idea is for the rule of the nation to be set in stone. And thus we have the two tablets of God's commands. Ezra was committed to the rules of the covenants given to Moses by God. The Hebrew word for the second word is focused on judgment. Those are rules. Judgment. Ezra focused not only on what they were to do, but also on the divine judgment, promise for obedience and for 
disobedience. So for a true reformation to occur, we need to state the hard truth of God's, of God's statutes and judgments so that it brings the necessary pain to move repentance for an individual to take responsibility for their life. And we just don't like pain. And so it takes courage to put people into pain in order that they might work off of that pain and repent and trust. It takes, requires courage. But, but how do we get courage? Well, thirdly, teaching requires the fear of the word, the fear of the word. See, we ought to fear the word because they are the words of God. What do the prophets say? Thus says the Lord. Or what does our doctrine of inspiration say? This is the word of God. See, if we fear a decision of our mayor or our governor or of our president, a decision that they make that's going to affect our lives, if we fear that, how much more we ought to fear the king of kings, the God of the universe. We ought to fear God's word. And we ought to fear the word because of the subject matter in it. All its doctrines and counsels, encouragements and warnings and judgments look upon us with respect to the next world, which will be our last state because it will be our eternal state. And so we ought to fear the word because it speaks to our eternal state. And we ought to fear the word because of its truthfulness and faithfulness. The scriptures cannot be broken. John Bunyan of Pilgrim's Progress fame wrote this book, The Fear of God, and he says this. Here they are called the scriptures of truth, the true sayings of God and also the fear of the Lord, for that every jot and tittle, therefore, is forever settled in heaven and stand more steadfast than does the world, Heaven on earth, says Christ, shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Those, therefore, that are favored by the word of God, those are favored indeed, and that with a favor that no man can turn away. But those that by the word of the scriptures are condemned, no man can justify in the sight of God. Therefore, what is bound by the text is bound, and what is released by the text is released. Also the bond and release is unalterable. This, therefore, calls upon God's people to stand more in the fear of the word of God than of all the terrors of the world. God's word says, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, this saying is a trustworthy saying, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom, Paul writes, I am the foremost. 
In other words, Paul is saying, if God will save me a blasphemer, a persecutor of Christians, a rude and arrogant opponent of truth, if he can save me, he can save you. And finally, the word of God says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whoever, whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And so I plead with you today. There is only one Savior. It is Jesus Christ. And it is a trustworthy statement saying to you that as bad as you may think you are, there is a Savior whose death on the cross is greater and deeper and wider, and his mercy is much more wonderful than any sin, all the sin of your life combined. Be saved. Trust in him. Enjoy him. And Christian, I plead with you, turn away from that sin that's holding on to you. Turn away from it, that which is feeding your flesh. Turn away from it. He will give you eternal life and what it means to have eternal life, and that is that you will reap all love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control as a result of being obedient. Reformation requires the right man or woman doing the right thing, and today's the day. You're it. Make the most of all that God has given you. Rest in his promises. Study the word. Set your heart on obedience. Live it out. Be reformed. Father, thank you. Thank you for this little section of your incredible word. Father, we, we do fear your word. For it is infallible. It is that which will not be changed. Father, we do fear because you tell us in your word that we do not think your thoughts and we do not do your ways. But God, thank you for your word, which tells us that if we will repent, that there is a pardon that is abundant. And so, Father, today we pray, give us faith, give us repentance. We pray, cause us to trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Give us what we need to turn away from sin and turn to you and enjoy all what it means to be a child of God. Father, we thank you that as we take this Lord's Supper is a reminder again that you have not broken a covenant. You've never broken your promises. That the blood that was shed, the body that was given, was more than sufficient for our sins, for our breaking of the covenant this past week. And so we again renew our covenants with you as we come and take. Thank you for this rhythm as we come and take the Lord's Supper. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.